0: Today on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have a Many Days Overdue Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A episode. Uh, Sorry, y'all. This is 5.47 p.m. on a Thursday night. Really do my best, and I think I've been successful for a while now getting these done Monday nights. Uh, Let's just say it's been a busy week in the Pruitt household. Positive week. Just... More busier-er than usual. This is your first time listening. I am Marshall Pruitt. I named the podcast after myself. I know, original. Cover IndyCar, cover sports cars here in North America. Worked in IndyCar for a while. Worked on the road to Indy for a long while. Been retired from that. Just figured, hey, why not try reporting? And, well, here you go. So, plus this little podcast that I kicked off in 2016. Eh, It's a thing. I enjoy it. This listener Q&A episode that I do each week. It's one that I'd say I enjoy just about the most. Refer to it as my unpolished turd. I leave in all the mistakes, all the errors, all the malapropisms and whatnot. It's just meant to be loose and conversational with you all. And if you're a big fan of super structured, really fast-paced things, well, this is going to be a giant disappointment. We try, and by we, I mean me, try to do everything we can to get you sped up with some random things going on at home, things maybe that I've observed or heard about in IndyCar, and then we get rolling into your listener-driven Q&A. Also drop in a timestamp in the description of every episode that tells you where the begins. Because if that's all you want to hear, well, darn it, we're going to serve that up. Till we get to that point, I want to say thank you to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA, which support all that we do here. Just launched a new periodical, not sure exactly when. It'll come out, show the Road to Indy Report, talking about in this first episode last weekend's Indie Pro 2000, and USF 2000 races. So if you're interested in the next generation talent in a series of three championships, obviously Indy Lights has been postponed until next year, but USF 2000, indie Pro 2000, and Indy Lights, well, it's been a big part of my life since I started in the sport in 1986. First thing I ever did was work on what we would call today a road to Indy team course that road to indy uses tires provided by cooper which also makes this show happen so some fun synergy as well got some cool things happening at home not quite ready to provide a public update with anything that would be considered fine fine details but i can tell you that my wife we're now a little over a month away from the two-year anniversary of when we started her fight against breast cancer, had some other big challenges as well that we have been dealing with, and I believe it was on, yeah, yesterday, Wednesday, it was, again, if we're talking anniversaries, one year since she had, uh, boy, biggest, scariest surgery of her life, my life, you name it, so... Thank you again to everyone who's been so supportive of she and I, my lady in particular. Mention here, too, that, boy, uh, we look at some of the things that we've gone through and then have to realize that the ability to do things like record podcasts, and even if I'm a couple days late, and many other things, um, it's really made possible by the generosity of so many folks that have helped us also, the good folks at Racer Magazine, Road and Track, and such that continue to ask me to do things for them, even amid this coronavirus. So, yeah, a lot of, lot of daily thanks, a lot of daily prayers as well. So, just wanted to extend a thank you to everyone here for your ongoing awesomeness. Also, offer apologies to a number of you who have sent me really nice. Emails, direct messages, etc. I have a whole bunch I just have to respond to to find time, which I will. So, yeah, at least one of them dates back to, I think, the end of May. So, yeah, I suck. Hey, I forgot to turn the ringer off on my phone, by the way. Uh, <laughs> like I said, it's the unpolished turn of a show. Uh just got an update here on uh friend Catherine Legg. Surgery is apparently completed, so uh boy. Great 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 to hear that dear cat is obviously not in a great way, but great to hear that recovery surgery and whatnot is all pointed in the right direction there. A couple things to mention before we get rolling with the show. We want to talk about rumors one that has been circulating in the IndyCar paddock for a little bit. Curious if it could cross over to IMSA as well. I have a pretty good feeling that there are questions about whether the full calendar as it is laid out will remain as such. I know that there are some recent questions that have been posed on the topic of Hey, if you look at the rest of the IndyCar races to run, we're obviously at Iowa Friday and Saturday. Then stay general proximity, going to mid-Ohio. Then go to Indianapolis. Then stay, again, kind of general Midwest proximity, going to Worldwide Technologies, beautifully sponsored gateway circuit, the oval there. Then we go way the heck out to the West Coast and do Portland. And then we hang around the next weekend and do a doubleheader Laguna Seca. Then we go back, do Indianapolis Motor Speedway Road Course, the Harvard, Harvard, Harvest Grand Prix. And then we close with a, yeah, I realize it's a coast, but it's a lot closer to the Midwest, that being St. Petersburg. Been hearing that the West Coast swing, the do just about everything in or around the Midwest, again, Texas, IMS Road Course, Road America, Iowa, Mid-Ohio, Indy 500, Gateway, Portland Laguna. Been hearing that there's questions as to whether those two Visits, one in Oregon, then driving south to my general neck of the woods to Monterey. Been hearing questions as to with the uh, coronavirus taking off and my state of California not being very smart to try and flatten that curve. Just been hearing some rumblings that, hmm, do we want to make our teams do big travel out that way? Or do we want to try and keep things more centrally located where by comparison and by and large, we're not talking about big coronavirus outbreaks in Indiana in etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So not saying that's going to happen, but I am saying it's something to keep on your radar. Other than that, I've been working on a couple of other little stories that hope fully we'll have ready for Monday, Tuesday or so. I think you might enjoy at least one or two of them, not necessarily all of them. Beyond that, I feels like we need to get rolling here after I throw in a quick little note. Spent a, probably 90 minutes on the phone earlier this week with my friend, my brother, Stefan Wilson. Next month, day after the Indy 500 mark the... 5 year anniversary of uh, my dear friend and his brother's loss that being Justin Wilson and so I was talking with Steph spent about 90 minutes on the phone i think two nights ago on the subject of want to do something in terms of writing but i don't know what and threw a couple ideas at him could tell that they landed a little bit flat and he I don't know if he knew it or was trying to find a nice way to suggest it. He came up with the most brilliant angle to embark upon. So hope to fill you in a little bit more on that um, once I get it rolling. <clears throat> but I was so thankful. It was genuinely one of those stop the call, <laughs> acknowledge the blessing that he had just offered. And so going to do that to try and celebrate the big man. Five years after his loss. So, uh, heavy hearts. Uh, but also thinking about whether it was Cheryl Glass who lost her life 23 years ago yesterday, the day before that Jeff Krasnov, uh, 24 years ago. So yeah, uh, in that place where we get to mid July, And not super happy with some of the friends uh, that we've lost. And then also thinking about the big man here coming up a little over a month from now on August 24th. So what's been going on? And there's lots of other stuff. not really in a position to mention yet, but good stuff nonetheless. And I hope to talk about that either on the show or present it to you in printed form on good old racer.com here very shortly. So with all that said... I'm hitting the marker. We're going to do it. We're going to start the Q&A. And where are we going to go first? Where, oh, where? Well, of course, how could we start the show without our pal from Holland? Peter Nutt says, Marshall, can we rotate Scott Dixon's race engineer, Michael Cannon, through the field each race and assign him to a different team each week? Said this is getting Mercedes silly. It's funny you mention that. <laughs> It was our man Cannon's birthday on Monday, and uh I posted a couple of somewhat embarrassing photos of him. I had a team owner uh send a little direct message with a even more embarrassing, compromising photo of our man Cannon. You know, when you sent this in, Peter, uh, I was like, Oh, that's a fun one. Then I thought about it, and you know, Cannon's one of my oldest friends. He was my race engineering mentor, worked with him for many years uh, in Formula Atlantic and Indy Lights. And I realized the guy's actually worked for just about all the teams. He's worked for Andretti. He has worked for Ganassi now. He's worked with Coin, uh, worked for Ed Carpenter and who else? I feel like it. Well, granted, there are a lot of teams that no longer exist, but he's worked for a lot of teams. So I think we're talking like Foyt and Penske and i don't know maybe ray hall or something like that but uh yeah he's been a lot of places so to your point i think he's kind of been there and done that already peter so yeah we'll uh, we'll give him a break but he seems to be enjoying himself that's actually it's amazing i had a a fairly prominent indycar driver asking me about him knowing that we were friends he was like well hey you know what's his deal you know hasn't he kind of gone through a lot of teams and been through a lot of teams. And I, yeah, just keep in mind that he's probably very similar to me in that capacity where some folks are very good at being in in a non-optimal working environment, uh, just kind of keeping their mouth shut, keeping their head down, being, uh, being real Halfway invisible, and just doing their thing, and then there are those of us who aren't and not saying that's a good thing, not saying it's a bad thing. I know that I bounced around across a number of IndyCar teams, just wasn't particularly fond of what I found at some of them uh, there's one that I worked at that was crazy racist. <laughs> also they just sucked and the culture was way off and i'm sure i contributed to some of that uh others i've been at were just the most awesome family feeling just you know everybody give each other a hug no arguments no anything like just the most fun solid group you could imagine uh, but we didn't really know how to win and didn't have a culture of winning, so therefore we didn't but we felt really good we're happy with one another but uh you know mid pack here we go so someone like Michael, I can say for sure is very much of a feel kind of guy, and if the vibe is right at the team, he has been at those teams for quite a while. If there's been something a little bit off, whatever it might be, well. Uh, not necessarily great at sticking around and just dealing with it. I'm the exact same way was the same way. So it's really cool. Peter to see him now late in his career, find a home at Ganassi and a friend of mine, unbeknownst to me, I won't mention his name, but uh, revealed that he was the one who actually planted the little nugget in Michael's ear last year at uh, mid Ohio of like, Hey, you ever thought about coming this way? And to which Michael said, no, why the hell would you need me? You've got all you need and all your guys are champions and ass kickers and was told, well, we're trying to kick more ass and trying to expand. And all of a sudden a thing where, you know, Michael, I bet could have finished out his career at Dale Coyne and just, continued to accept the financial limitations and, you know, do your best with what you got, but you're never going to vie for a championship. It's really cool to see Michael have this door opened, and I don't know if I've seen him happier in a really, really long time. Just fulfilled. And it's not because he's winning, although that certainly helps. It's just the culture and him being embraced Everything feeling right, being right. And on top of that, he and Dixon are making one heck of a formidable combination. So really cool, Peter, to see how the vibe, man, the vibe does matter uh, for some of us. And uh, he's a guy who certainly has found the right vibe at the house of Chip. Let's go to James McNutt, who asks, why did spam Also known as Arrow McLaren SP, send Pato Award out on used tires for that final stint. Also mentions continued positive waves for Mrs. P. We got vibes, we got waves, all kinds of fun to open the show. James, as I understand it, that's what they felt was the best thing to do. And, you know, hindsight being one of those wonderful things, of course, we could think of different things for them to try. I know the, the only item I'd throw in here, which I think was missed a bit. I wrote about it, uh, after the race, but I think it was still generally missed was we had a situation with him in the middle ish stint, uh, of the race on new primaries He started the race, as did all but, I think, two drivers on new alternates, the Reds, and was quick like a bunny, uncatchable, moved over to new primaries, the Blacks, and started dealing with excessive rear tire degradation, burning off the rears faster than the fronts, And that's where the main issue was diagnosed, not just diagnosed, but the main issue was revealed. And so once you're dealing with that, I can only say that, yeah, you could probably try and throw new reds on. I don't know if they had new reds. That's the thing. Those new reds, uh, they can take a moment to become great. And I think that might be the reason why there was a decision to go with the used reds, and not crazy used reds, but used reds nonetheless. So since we had a situation where the car was best on reds, not great on the primaries, the mindset of let's close the race on reds instead of primaries I would say that's not too crazy of a uh, of a call here. I again, I don't, I don't have their tire inventory in front of me. Frankly, I didn't ask if they had a new set of reds. It could have been something to consider, but if they did not and are staring at either brand new primaries or used reds, I would have gone with the used reds, knowing that we'd just come off of new primaries. And those things, the balance, the just overall setup was not jiving with them as we saw the rears get burned off. So I know that there was a lot of, oh my goodness, what are you doing? you you ruined the end of the race by, make, by this tire change. I didn't necessarily see that. So another thing too, I know uh, there was a feeling that running behind Connor Daly in turbulent air helped thoroughly mess up those used reds and burn off the rears, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh okay. <laughs> I'm not uh I would lean towards the Juan Montoya. It is what it is. Man, you know, this you were compromised. It was clear you were going to be compromised halfway through the race. There was no magic ticket out that you could come up with. I don't believe Connor Daly was some sort of evil agent that ruined the race. Um, I'd say this is the kind of stuff we get when teams don't have a lot of practice time handling deficiencies that maybe weren't seen beforehand all of a sudden pop up and you got to deal with it. So I don't believe spam had a magic higher set to put on or anything they could do reasonably with chassis set up in the middle of a race to resolve the problem. And we got what we got. We are going to stick with James who also had another comment it says kudos to NBC sports for putting the winning pass and final few laps on their YouTube channel. Since my Xfinity DVR stopped recording just as the winning pass was about to occur. Well, boo on you Xfinity, although I have Xfinity and was watching it on that. And yeah, I think I was watching it live. So therefore, uh, didn't have that problem happen. Thankfully, James. All right. We're going to get into a little bit of stuff here about William Jehoshaphat power and Simon Pagino too. But yeah. Uh, there's some there's some lingering grumpiness about our boy DJ Willie P. I'm gonna start off with Ryan Churchstra says MP had a really long question here. I'll bullet point it. Power couldn't pass anyone at Indy after his stall. The turn one incident on Sunday seemed like a real racing deal to me. Turn three with Ray Hall is a bit more ambitious, but the helicopter spin in turn thirteen. I'm starting to wonder if he's feeling. Real serious pressure from Scott McLaughlin's pending move to IndyCar. And I know, Ryan, that you thought Paul Tracy was referring to executing a helicopter spin. He wasn't. Uh, also says, on that topic, Pagano has three poor qualifying performances on road courses to his name. Let's see. I'm going to stick with this one before getting into some of the other power questions on Ryan's note about Scott McLaughlin. Uh, No. I would say not at all. And from what I was told very recently, which is different from what I'd previously understood, uh, I believe our man, Mr. Power, is obliged to be there at least one more year. So provided that's accurate, uh, anything that might happen with Mr. McLaughlin might not happen in the number 12 Verizon Chevrolet. So assuming that's accurate, um, I don't think that there's any behind-the-scenes contractual things that could happen to yank Will out of the car. Uh, I know that having spoken with Will after the race, uh, he rang just to catch up and whatnot. I mean, I know he was very... Frustrated and saddened by what happened in some regards, but was also not fully understanding all the blame. And so, this is not me sticking up or attacking Will, this is just explaining. If you watch what happened with our pal Ryan Hunter Ray to start the Sunday race, you had Scott Dixon going past him on the outside lane making things three wide. If you look at power, it certainly appears that he sees Dixon pull that move and says, cool outside lane. Let me try and do that as well. At the same time, will was trying to do that to Hunter Ray Hunter Ray turned left. I do not know if that turning left was in reaction. Hey, I see power is trying to pass me as well, I'm going to block that. Or if it was just simply Hunter Ray looking forward and saying, oh, I'm going to try and get around here and go around the outside too. Genuinely don't know. But I do know that there was frustration on Ryan's part that Will was there kind of a, dude, what are you doing there? Um, I mean, it's open road, I guess, but I still understand, you know, there was a feeling of, all right, man, uh, I don't know if you should really be trying to do that this late in the corner. I think Ryan certainly has a point there. Would also say that, you know, depending on whether you're a willpower fan or not, because there are certainly a lot of folks who have expressed they are not willpower fans <laughs> since last weekend. Uh, there's a might be a belief that he should not have been anywhere near and was just starting a lap of golden bowling ball So not saying that's a 50-50 thing, just saying that you had two folks who had a completely different view of what happened and why it happened and whether it should have happened. The turn three of Ray Hall. I'll tell you again, that one's, there's no doubt that power hit him. There's no question at all. A little bit of a weird thing after that, where that hit didn't throw Graham into the barrier. Uh, You saw that Graham had to gather the car up, was out on the extreme limits of the track. I think ended up dipping his left rear tire a bit into the dirt gravel or otherwise, and got back on the throttle super hard, trying to minimize the performance loss from that hip check. And with where he romped on the throttle, uh, not firm tarmac beneath him to do that. It, unbeknownst to him, obviously, he wouldn't knowingly get on the throttle if he knew the one of the, the most loaded rear tire was going to light up and then spin the thing and pitch him off course. Um, there was a bit of a two-parter here. 100% wills fall for hitting him, no question. Graham tried to gather the thing up and take off and not get, you know, murdered going down the long straight. Totally, again, guys, innocent bystander here. By chance, in reaction to what power instigated, Graham's timing of getting onto the throttle, while he was clear no longer in any contact with power, ended up pitching his car sideways, spitting him to the other side of the track, where he hit Felix Rosenquist, which then pinballed him back over to the left and into that uncovered barrier, which smashed the living poop out of his number 15 Honda. (sighs) Did Will make Graham step on the throttle that hard with one of his rear tires? Partially onto the grass and or dirt. No. Did Will trigger the thing that led Graham into that situation? Yes. If you're just watching this as it's happening live, there's every reason for most folks to go, "Oh my God, Will Powers totally out of control." I think if you attempt to look at nuance, which I know a lot of people don't and haven't. I think you might see that this wasn't a guy who was totally out of control. The Ray Hall thing, by every estimation, was the one that was the most clear. Dude, trying a little bit too hard. The turn one thing eh, didn't really jump out to me that way. I'm not saying he was in the right, just saying I don't think he was in the wrong as much. As folks have positioned him and i thought that the moment after watching the replays so there you go uh let's go to daniel Ingleton marshall is there an issue with willpower's behavior Uh, stating on sunday that he would uh crash dixon out if he tried to pass then the inexcusable punt of hunter ray at the start low percentage shot at ray hall is this man under pressure at penske not to my knowledge and so this is separate from the Scott McLaughlin, is he going to come in and take his seat thing? Is there anything at Penske where Roger, Tim Sindrick are shouting at him and threatening him and, you know, that kind of stuff? Not that I know of, that, that sure doesn't seem like their style. I can tell you for sure, though, Daniel, that young Mr. Power places an extraordinary amount of pressure on himself to perform. And I think like most elite athletes, never works from a place of comfort. Oh, yeah, it's all good. No issues. I'm safe as can be. Whether you got a contract or not, uh, the mindset of the most successful drivers I've seen has been one where they're always trying to prove they deserve it or maybe possibly prove they deserve more but there's always something to prove. And so I think that's the mindset that you're going to find within power. Uh, Not some sort of pressure from Penske different from any other time to perform. That's always been there. If you take the end of that lap, understeering off of, what was that, turn 13, I think, and then doing the flying blow up the trackside banner thing or barrier or whatever, uh, hoarding piece, I mean, that, that, that sealed the old deal, right? That was the, all right, dude, you're, you're, you have now officially lost full control of this thing you're trying to do. So terms of being a little bit rattled, wanting and needing to, overcome and fix the mistakes that happened in turn one and turn three, I think you could absolutely say that by the end of the lap, him flying off, um, that was him trying way too hard to make up for lost ground. And that's where everything went sideways. What I would say leaving road America, Daniel, and it's an assumption, but it's would not be uncommon in any major highly successful racing team is for if there wasn't a phone call from Roger or uh, from Tim or whatever, sit down after the race, I'd completely expect there to be some sort of conversation here before things kick off in Iowa. Just a, are you all right? Are you okay? Not (laughs) do we need to bring a psychologist? Okay. But just, You all right? Last weekend was a little rough, buddy. Uh, You know, you ended up having a great result on Saturday. That part was fantastic for you. And frankly, that has been the one shining positive for the season so far when he finished second. But 13th at Texas, 20th on the IMS road course. Again, rough day there. Then 11th on Sunday at Road America. I mean, he recovered well, obviously, on Sunday. But we had a lot of cars taken out, some that he took out to help improve those positions. But wouldn't be abnormal for the team to wait, right? To wait until you're together next. less someone has messed up multiple times. uh, The pulling them in right after the race into the closed-door meeting and MF and one another, one another and throwing things. And, you know, uh, in this situation, it would not be uncommon, Daniel, for the team to give him his space, say, Hey, go clear your head. We'll cat. We'll talk when we get to Iowa and just have a bit of a miniature state of the union. Okay. We've had four races so far. Three of them haven't been stellar. Uh, Two have actually been very unstellar in year 7th in points, which isn't the end of the world, but there's a lot of points to get to the guy who's leading right now. How you doing? What do you need? What can we do to help? And then finally, let's go into this weekend... Let's go do race number five and race number six at Iowa and do well. Let's not throw the thing down the inside of four cars trying to get the pass done into turn three and on lap number five and do the bowling ball routine. Let's not do anything spectacular. Let's just be us and be good. But mentally, we need you to be in a place where you are getting to the finish line in both races, getting good finishes in both races so we bring home some good points. Let's hit a bit of a reset button here. I would not be surprised if that kind of conversation took place, Daniel. Let's go to Jonathan Green. Hey, Jonathan. Says, to whoever's crazy enough to answer this, how would you rate Will Powers' bowling ball performance on Sunday? You know... I didn't, if you read my post race analysis thing, my brain dumps on Racer, I mentioned the golden bowling ball and power, but I didn't actually award it to him. So I've seen better, right? Be the coming back to the J Rue the Damages song, you played yourself. I know that the turn one incident with Hunter Ray made a bit of an enemy there. I know the turn three with Ray Hall certainly made an enemy there. I'd say the turn 13 flying off tabletop, ollieing, whatever you want to call it, um, his his turning the 12 Chevy into a skateboard and not necessarily pulling off that flip, kick, whatever, I'd say that was his own bowling ball. Uh, I would say in that instance, man, he was the pin, and he hit himself. It was impressive, right? I mean, we saw one or two others fly off there. This was some real, like, holy crap. Dude, wow. only thing we were lacking were judges trackside holding up, scoring at 9.8, 9.9, and off. Oh, the Armenian judge gives willpower a 10, and, you know, See where uh, see where his Road America X Games performance happened to get him in the final standing. So, yeah, again, yeah, I know uh, the two incidents plus taking himself out, playing himself. It's one of the worst laps of his of his life. But I just didn't feel super bowling bally. Uh, I don't know why, but and I'm I'm never shy to give it away. Yeah, I don't know. There there was something that just didn't stick out here. Let's close the uh, DJ Willie P topic with our man, JJ Gertler says, MP, you've been a team principal. When a driver has a race like Will Power had on Sunday with the competitors in the series looking hard at him, what does a team typically do internally? Are there discussions with the driver to try to settle him down? Look at changes to their pre-race routine, maybe call a sports psychologist, or do they just say, oh, well, he'll be fine next weekend. Says, at Penske, would it be Rick Mears, Tim Sindrick, or someone else handling that? We know who manages the driver during the race, who manages the driver between the races. Says, also, if I remember correctly, this is Powers' contract year again. Apologize there. And I'm just going off of what I'd known before, which was this is the contract year, and I was told by someone in the know that it's not. So apologies again on that. Wanted to use yours, JJ, here, knowing that I entered it uh, by and large, or a lot of this stuff, Daniel's question, but I liked the angle of do we know who manages the driver between the races? I wanted to close the subject on this one because power is a very different driver than I'm accustomed to and I love it, so again, that's not a criticism. It's actually the opposite. The guy is just a unicorn in that regard. Power is 100% mind. That He is ridiculously smart. That's something that not everybody maybe knows. I know I give him crap all the time, and others give him crap um about being crazy and wacky and all that kind of stuff and maybe that gives off the impression that he's you know not the sharpest tool it couldn't be further from the truth. Guy's genuinely whip smart and he's also someone who is very connected to his emotions and the things that affect him. These are all things that are well known but they need to be acknowledged here so if scott dixon has two or three bad races in a row hits everything but the pace car embarrasses himself granted i can't think of any time that he's really done that time after time again but if this is scott dixon you know who he talks to you know who counsels him nobody That's not Dixon's character. Now, granted, I'm sure Chip would talk to him. Hey, man, you know, and whatever, Mike Hull and a whole bunch of, I'm sure plenty of folks would want to offer things. It's not really his character, though. He is the least affected guy I've probably come across in any capacity in terms of drivers. Uh, He will certainly feel highs and lows, and he will vent when he is pissed and not get too high when things go well. But this is a guy who, boy, I tell you, um, things are going bad. He is not someone who truly lets that sink in and go nuts in his mind. Uh, He's not a freak-out guy. He's just, his ability to keep his mind focused and on lockdown That is one of his greatest attributes. It's the reason why he's winning everything, champion countless times over, etc. Power has the ability to do those very same things, but he has the ability to get thrown off a bit if too many inputs or distractions start to come in. So he does something that some other drivers do as well, which is look at the calendar for the upcoming race at wherever and plan his life and communications and input accordingly. I know having worked with a lot of these drivers for many years as a reporter, there's some where if I need to interview them or about something or get a quote and there's a race this weekend. I don't get that call in by Tuesday, maybe Wednesday They're not picking up. They'll get it. They'll see it. I can even text them. not getting anything back because they've gone into their bubble. It's it's strictly a mental one to shut out the world, get focused on the thing they have to do. Some might want an extra 24 hours that the next person wouldn't, but that's a power thing. And again, he's not the only one that does that. But this is a guy who to get the best out of himself needs the fewest distractions, the fewest uh dissenting voices in his ear. Oh man, you, dude, you're screwing up, you can't do this or he doesn't he's not someone who needs a lot of cheerleading that I have seen. So I mention all these things, JJ, because I'm positive that just from a team standpoint that an RP or a Syndric once they get to the track and they're in race mode Say hey, where are we at? How are we doing? What do we need to do? You know, well, let's focus in on this weekend and maybe you know dial it back half a percent, one percent, which is a lot for the for these drivers. And you know, if you're running fifth and a desperation move to get fourth is in front of you, we're finishing fifth because we need that fifth more than we do the twentieth. If it doesn't work, if we get down to the end of the year and a desperation pass could be the thing that gets you the points to win the championship and if you don't do it you'll never get it. All right. We'll 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 give that the green light today going into race 5 or race 6 coming off of a couple that weren't great. Uh, that's different than getting into his head, I would say JJ. So the managing part, yeah. Some drivers, a Dixon Could be coming off a couple of brutal races, and you know what? Doesn't need to hear it, folks. Don't really try it. He's got him. He's he is his own counsel. Power. He's a guy who needs a little bit more silence than anything. He's a guy who needs to keep things really quiet and private, and to get his own head tuned if it's off. Dixon's a guy where it's never really off. Power. He needs to keep himself tuned up. I've written about it many times. It's been that way for quite some time. That's his routine. So I struggle to think, JJ, of anyone from the team, even a Rick Mears, really trying to go hardcore getting into his head, seeing if they need to move any things around in there, move some furniture around to get him to a good place. So whenever he retires, there's going to be what I hope will be some fascinating stories or podcasts to do or something. Because the mental approach of willpower has been, uh, there's a book, there's genuinely another willpower book to be written about this, and it fascinates me to no end. Let's go to a different topic. This is talking about friends at Andretti Autosport. L Jones Areno from Reddit. Hey there. Thanks for sending this in. Says, hey, MP, have you heard any details on why the Andretti cars have been struggling so much this season? It's great to see Rossi back on the podium this weekend. He was still pretty far from the front. I've heard some people pointing fingers at the Honda power plant. But that Honda sure isn't hurting. Chip Ganassi Racing. What do you think is happening? Got a couple of similar ones here. Joe Izzo. Marshall. Lack of practices hurt Rossi. Seems like once his race engineer, Jeremy Millis, has time to peruse the data, such as from race one at Road America, uh, becomes game on. What can they do to overcome the lack of practice they are getting? Also says, God bless you and yours. Go here with these two. I haven't been at the track. So this is the thing where normally I'd be able to answer this by having seen the cars up close in the corners, see what they are or are not doing in comparison to the leaders. Also being on pit lane and just looking at the cars and some of the tweaks and tuning bits being done, chat with the engineers and and get a little bit closer in on some of that. Haven't been able to burrow into this one yet. L Jones Arino and L Joe Izzo. I would tell you though, it has certainly stood out to me that this team has not, gotten off to the rocking start they were hoping for both at Texas and the Indy Grand Prix, and that has continued. Could it be the dreaded damper word? Could it be they've fallen a tiny bit behind in that regard where Penske has obviously been great and Ganassi has been even greater? It's possible. Big variable, though across all these teams is the aero screen and learning how to engineer the car with it there. It's a challenge every team is facing and I cannot overstate how big of a physics and chassis balance and everything balance change it has brought to the party. So this is just purely Hypothesis not something that I know to be true, just stating things that pop into my head, part of what we've seen this year, terms of some teams succeeding early and others struggling a little bit or taking a while, as uh Joe mentioned here about you know getting in more laps and then responding getting a little bit better after uh, they have a lot more data to work from. Is this exposing? the development processes in some of the bigger teams and showing that you know, maybe at least, again, to start the season, the Ganassi team has been truly exceptional at grasping the changes brought by the aero screen, its weight, it sitting up high, it messing with the center of gravity, causing the car to roll more. Therefore, you are looking at damper development spring rates, you are looking at geometry changes, you're looking at everything that you can to adjust the angle of the tires pointing forward or camber or this or that. I mean, these are all things that are being affected by the aero screen. Are we seeing that one or two teams are doing it better than the rest? Right. Not saying they have better engineers, just... Look, here's a big change everyone has to deal with. What is this going to do naturally? It's going to present a stress test on each organization to demonstrate how they receive this change, how they process the ways they should counteract the negative effects of this weight up high, up front, all these things that you wouldn't want from a performance standpoint. How is each team devising their off-season development plan? The arrow screen didn't actually hit the track and start running across the majority of the paddock until, what, second month of the year? Something like that. So, again, how have we seen these teams react to it, come up with plans to counteract as much as possible, so on and so forth? And... Naturally, you're going to have a couple that really figure it out and do great. And you're going to have some small teams, probably. Coin being one where you go, hey, you guys kicked a lot of butt last weekend. Santino, I believe, was also pretty quick in the Indy GP. Um, Palo was quick at Texas. You know, this is a team that looks like having gone through a pretty big engineering shuffle, losing Cannon, losing Craig Hampson. Good old... uh, Olivier Boisson and Eric Cowden, they're doing really good work. So are they the small team that has really done their homework and they're outshining some of the bigger ones here? Again, I'm not saying it's not all aero screen, but that's the big difference from one year to the next. Other quick thing here to add on the Andretti front, not saying I have the answer to it, but I do know that to close the year in 2019... They were not the strongest thing that we have ever seen. All right, our man Lance Snyder says, it looks like RHR and Ross here fighting to give each other the cartoon anvil. What ritual must be performed to shed the anvil and keep it gone? Well, if I was a shameless promoter of things that I don't actually profit from, it would be the new generic cartoon anvil protection t-shirt for sale at torontomotorsports.com, where $7.28 from every purchase goes to Ryan Hunter Ray's Racing for Cancer Charity. Boy, what you know what they should do? Fight, right? Out of a Fight Club and Dready edition, right? I mean, I know that they, through Liza Markle, who uh, works with Alexander, I know that they did a sage ritual over his entry. Um uh, I don't know if it's a sage thing for Hunter Ray. I wonder if it's some sort of fish-based thing. The guy's always fishing, so maybe there's a magic fish. They could, like, parade around the car. Maybe they just fight, right? I mean, we don't get many fights in IndyCar. We're, we're f- fisticuffs poor. Why not have two teammates? Just slug it out. Loser. Well, you lose, you get the bad luck, right? I mean, that that only makes sense. And J.J. Gertler, you throw in, as the foremost historian of the Hunter Ray cartoon anvil, was Sunday's race at Road America, its earliest known arrival. Well, no, not by any means, J.J. They did a full parade lap or two, took the start, got to turn one, and then it hit brother, we just got to go back to June 6th at Texas. It hit before the fricking cars were even started. Well, trying to start before he even left pit lane. The cartoon anvil struck his number 28 Honda with that ECU issue that had the Honda engine techs been allowed to plug in Chevy as well. Well, they could have circumvented that. So no. I'd have to say that that would certainly be it uh, for sure. So when it hits before you've even started the motor, when you can't start the motor because the cartoon anvil, that is definitely it. All right, we're going to try and rock and roll through the final questions here. And you got plenty. Uh, I only have so much time today. So plus I'm really late and I suck. And by this point, you probably don't care because... It's about time to go play Iowa. Uh, Nathan Wolfel, curious about qualifying times at Road America slightly slower than a year year ago due to aero screen or other factors uh, like less track time. I'd have to say both for sure. Uh, Carlos Villalobos, dear MP, uh, says, due to the aero screen, are they running the cars softer? Says they seem to roll more on camera. Well, all depends, my man. Uh, really it's going to be the limit of the tire. I mean, if you are, you want to run the front of the cars strong enough to get through the corner, usually the rear is something that's a wee bit softer because you've got more weight. You're going to want to control it more through the anti-roll bar, but, uh, there's a lot of weight there. So if you're running really stiff at the rear, boy, that's going to do more bouncing up and down than actually complying. So, I can't tell you in terms of spring rates being softer across the board, but usually when you have more weight in the front of the car causing the thing to roll around more, not just front back but diagonally as well, you're going to be looking at some anti-roll bar bits there to control, probably more than you would throw heavy springs at it. So I would not be surprised to hear if front damping is a wee bit softer, but I wouldn't think we were talking anything crazy. Uh, the the rolling is the part that probably do some more trickery at the back of the car to control what's happening up front, believe it or not. For those who know these things, that's really obvious. For those who don't, there's a little inside piece of engineering. Uh, let's see. Kevin Kerner was noodling today about the cooling issues. For the indie cars. I'm curious if it's feasible for the cars to just run without the screen part on road and street circuits. The lack of high speed air is a constant thing, but put them back on for high speed ovals. Then mention about likelihoods of crashes and debris and where it might happen more than others. Um, and you got to mention some other things here too. Thank you, Kev. Uh, no, I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, hey, they just got a problem and they can't seem to solve it easily. They just need to keep working this through to solve the problem. So the whole idea of doing the arrow screen instead of just a halo is to provide total protection for the driver in terms of things coming at them from the front and up top as well, uh, in terms of crashing down on top of them. If you start taking away the screen part, um, you know for here and there, you just are not maximizing your full safety potential, so I realize that there are some drivers who are not super happy with the heat, nor should they be. But with the most recent change coming for this weekend, a uh, piece that we think and hope will get the stagnant air hot air moving out of the car and decrease cockpit temperatures, this is just a case, kev where they need to get this right and they need to work this problem through until they get the solutions they need. Band-aiding things by taking things off or putting them on or... I know that that's the easy route, but it's not the way you solve a problem. And also, talking public embarrassment, IndyCar takes screen off of cars because they can't figure out cooling. Like, that's a pretty big... Pretty big embarrassment to consider. So um, embarrassment should not be the primary driver here, nor is it. But this is just something they need to keep working through, and it seems like they're getting a grasp on it. I know they're also talking to their teams more and receiving more input on more things that they might do to improve cockpit cooling. So they're doing the things that we've seen so far in a three-weekend stretch on the road, busy, 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 minimal time. I would say that leaving Iowa, they're going to have, what, two weeks or so? Uh, three weeks or so? Uh, you know, a decent chunk of time, that being IndyCar, to look at more things they would do and try and get those things ready from mid-Ohio. So, they've done a lot while being on the road and being busy. That's the thing that is it hasn't surprised me so much, but I didn't expect them to go this far in such a short amount of time and on a compressed schedule. So a lot of respect for how aggressively they have attacked this. We're going to find out quickly on Friday where they are at in terms of getting this thing right. Uh, let's see. Fine Disregard from Reddit has a question about IndyCar's international content on UK Sky Sports. And just summarize some of this more curious about whether IndyCar cares about international broadcasters handling the sports beyond paying rights and whether they actively promote it. Hmm. I don't want to speak for the series because I don't work for the series. Uh, and I don't know these things. I can only give you general impression here. And that is since IndyCar had to take on the full international broadcast rights when they parted ways with ABC and ESPN a lot to learn here things didn't actually go super smoothly and I would say that they might be stretched a wee bit too thin to really burrow in on UK for example and best possible package and promoting the heck out of it and making sure it's aware and known Do I feel like this is something that could be done better? Absolutely. Um, haven't had a chance to broach this with Mark Miles or Roger Pensky, but I would believe this is an area they will want to improve somewhat swiftly. Of the things to consider, IndyCar still does not have a giant staff, a giant budget, these are things that need to get figured out and improved so that more than just Steven Starks, who's <laughs> responsible for all track-related items, all the promoters and deals and the whole calendar and international TV, I'm not saying Steven can't do that and isn't doing it well. I'm just saying that Steven could use a staff of two or three or four more to make this happen, uh, if not you know, maybe should this be spun out into a completely separate department? Cause this is really important. So yeah, uh, would say, of course, the natural answer to everything is they should do better. They should do more. They should spend more. They should do again. Everyone should always do better and have more money and do everything perfectly. We know that that is just not a case in our hashtag me personally, personal lives much less in any business. Of course, we would love to see IndyCar doing a better job here not making excuses for them, Just stating the obvious that in a year that has been affected by the coronavirus and in a year where the series has undergone ownership change and a lot of big-ticket items renovating the Speedway and a whole bunch of other things are on the front burner, I know this will be brought forward to the front burner i don't know where this moves forward on the timeline but it's clear it needs to happen and this is an area to invest in uh let's go to rubs r-u-u-u-b-s from reddit rubs how much do you think physical stamina ultimately affected the second race at road america Most of the top 10 are pretty young, and even without the pit fiasco, Scott Dixon didn't look like troubling the podium after three straight wins. In the drivers that I've spoken to, they were less worn out than they thought they were going to be. Uh, I know that it was something to watch for sure, something to track, but didn't really seem to be a thing would also throw in that While things got a little bit ugly to start, and uh, towards the end, we had a a yellow not too far from the end. There were a couple breaks thrown in uh, across Saturday and Sunday that I think helped. Uh, Were we talking two 55-lap races unbroken, no cautions whatsoever? Might have ended up seeing more physical wear for sure. Let's go to Jameen Tuttle. MP, how does the paddock feel about the doubleheader weekends? I know as a fan, it's a lot of on-track action across two days, and I loved it. Hopefully, we can keep a few of these, besides Detroit, in a normal year. All the conversations I've had with folks have been along the lines of, wow, <laughs> this we've gone from zero to brutal in no time, and we sat around doing not much for a couple months, even had some time where we weren't even allowed near the, shop or anything else and good lord we are making up for lost time and so the general sense is we are exhausting ourselves and getting to sunday night i'm sorry saturday night at whatever time it is local uh 11 o'clock or whenever the race finishes 10 30 11 o'clock whatever it is oh boy they're going to be some cold beers cracked and A lot of folks really looking forward to getting home ASAP so they can have a mini, mini break. Because not only do they deserve it, keep in mind here, yeah, so, hey, the race is over Saturday night, July 18th. Fantastic. And then we don't go racing again until August 9th. Ah, vacation time. No, it's getting your Indy 500 cars ready time. So... (laughs) on top of prepping road racing cars to go back to uh, their beautiful, beautiful place uh, in Mansfield, Ohio, we have the Indy 500 coming right after that. And we have super extra polished, beautiful super speedway chassis to make sure that they are aero-optimized and mechanically drag-optimized and just everything. So, yeah, what we're going to see here is a lot of folks not farting around, loading the truck and taking extra time. And like, you know, there'll be some beers cracked for sure to celebrate and just, hey, we made it through this crazy stretch and wore ourselves out in ridiculous heat. But then also there's the knowledge of you're not, it's not the uh, NFL deal where, hey, you did great. We'll see you on Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, This is going to be a day. Day and a half, maybe. And so folks are going to n- want to get home on Sunday and use as much of that Sunday to recover. Can't tell you if teams are going to give crews Monday as well, but that Indy 500 thing coming up right on the horizon, that's going to be the thing that keeps teams making sure that folks aren't truly off and wandering and just heading off to Disney for a week. Uh, so with all that said, I think in a normal year, non coronavirus compressed year, I think some of these double headers could actually stick around. I know Mark Miles in an interview today, you know, they were talking about how Iowa could be open to uh, doing this. If there is anything that comes out of this, Jameen, I think this being this year and having to get in a bunch of races just to get enough total races done to say, hey, that's a real championship I think we might see more of this I think there might be a sense of instead of spreading everything out and making us run all over the country back and forth and sometimes to tracks where you know if we had to be honest we'd say maybe we don't get a lot of fans there maybe profit for the promoter or the series or the whatever is limited Are there some instances where we might trim one or two tracks from the calendar and say, you know, doubleheader gateway or Iowa or Iowa and gateway and who knows where else. Um, I don't dislike a doubleheader in Detroit. I know that it is something that makes it unique among all the other venues in a normal year. Do I think you'd hear a single IndyCar team complain if Detroit converted back to a single race on Sunday, and another venue took its place as a doubleheader? I don't think so. Uh, doubleheaders on street courses tend to be expensive things because street courses crashes bad, cement walls bad. So I do believe whether it is in Iowa, whether it is Laguna. Uh, provided we go there. Um wherever it might be, I think that there could be there could be something here uh, provided we're not burning out the crews by doing back to back to back. I mean, we have back to back double headers. <laughs> it's brutal. Just brutal. If they're not brutal, I would love to see them stay cuz if you can buy a ticket and it isn't a crazy price like they're trying to charge you double because it's two races. I think motor racing in general, Jameen, is going to come out of 2020, just as we've seen with Formula One. And I know that, you know, they're, uh, what I think NASCAR has done, I don't know if it's double headers, but hey, we're going to go right back to the place we were a couple days later or stay here effectively, uh, just put a couple days between races. I think if there's a, a positive. If there's a win to come out of the Corolla virus, it might be some of your favorite racing series realizing, yeah, we better over our fans and make sure that they get all they could possibly get. So maybe that'll carry forward here. All right. I'm going to cherry pick a bit here as we start to wind down a bit. Uh, Ed Joris, you got a question here about a golf cart race. I have no idea how to answer that, unfortunately. Uh, Ryan Terpstra, you got one about this new SRX Primetime on CBS, organized by Tony Stewart and Ray Everham. Mentioned Dixon and Kanan are on their wish list for the 12 drivers, along with Montoya. Paul Tracy says, due to the size of the field, I think they'll realistically get maybe one IndyCar driver um, who's on their wish list. Who do you pick to be that driver? Says hashtag me personally comes down to Rossi versus New Garden. Hmm, I love where they're going with this. By the way, uh, uh, the idea of a new racing series, you know, one that uh, one that falls right into Tony's Tony Stewart's uh, heritage and lane. I think that's pretty awesome. Who would I like to see get chucked in here and throw around some monsters on? dirt Uh, let's see i want to see takuma sato i think the guy has not done enough really diverse forms of racing knowing that he's in theory in the twilight of his career so i want to see takuma sato out there he's not afraid of anything he's crazy talented he's a quick learner um that's who i'd want to see i think that would be a blast The guy who I think might be the surprise if he were given an opportunity would be Rosenquist. Um, He's everything I just mentioned about Sato, minus the lack of diversity of driving different things. Partner, he's driven everything. That kid is so ridiculously good. And such, he's not a fast learner. He's an immediate learner. He is... He's perfectly built for jumping into IndyCar today, GT car tomorrow, prototype the next day, stock car the next, sprint car, dirt, whatever after that, snowmobile, skis, pogo stick. This kid is brutal in terms of all-around talent. So I'd love to see Sato do it just because I haven't seen him do enough things. I was like, oh, that's cool. Go do that. But if we're talking someone who I think might just cotton on to it immediately, I'd say our boy Felix Rosenqvist. All right, we've got a long one here from Wade J. Michael. I'll see if I can summarize a bit. Uh, talking about last weekend, was there, um, was surprised by the crowds on Saturday and Sunday, the lack of any widespread mask wearing. So that was uh, anxiety-inducing. Says what he also witnessed at Road America was a social distancing disaster. Says he wore a mask the entirety of the day and can confidently say I saw less than five percent of people doing the same. This was, to my knowledge, the first major sporting event in the country to allow fans at full capacity. What were your thoughts on what you saw on the packed hillsides and slammed camping grounds on TV? Huh. Yeah. Well, I noticed a couple things along this exact subject. Throw a quick sidebar up front. I have no idea how wearing masks have become some sort of personal freedom. You'll pry this musket from my cold dead hands kind of thing. Like, good God, I don't get it. We're the freest people you could imagine. We're going to fight over, the, we're going to scream at people at Walmart and Target and whatever if we're asked to wear a mask. Like I don't get that. Uh, I really don't. Uh, of all the battles to fight, like this just doesn't seem to be one of them to hashtag me personally. So as a guy that has worn a mask and gloves for, I don't know, a long time? Longer than the coronavirus virus has been here because of my wife's Immunocompromisation um, might be a little bit more attuned to looking for these things. I don't recall if I mentioned it last week on the show, but when we're driving to the constant appointments that we're going to, it's almost like the license play game where my wife is like, no mask, no mask, mask, no gloves, uh, mask. He's wearing a mask no mask or anything on his daughter, what the hell, or whatever. And it's just because it's so ingrained because her life is at risk that, yeah, we are personally protected at all points in time. Why wouldn't everyone else just do this really simple thing to help either themselves or others? And so that's pretty much the same game that I was playing watching last weekend. Wade, where since I wasn't there and all I could do is go by on what I saw on TV and some photographs, it sure seemed like there were a lot of folks believing that because they were out in the fresh, clean air that the corona virus couldn't get them. And, hey, social distancing, wimps. Masks, wimps, whatever. I know that before the event that... The track was very interested in being able to do contact tracing. And yeah, Uh, I didn't mention this in my post-race analysis because I just want to see where it's at before I really write anything. It looked like there are a lot of folks, a lot of folks, thousands of folks who are totally unbothered by the coronavirus, catching it, transmitting it, whatever else. And if that's the case, well, that is your freedom as an American to do that. Um, I really hope we do not start to learn that, oh, boy, there was a big outbreak. And whether it was in a campsite over here or, who again, who knows? It'd be really bizarre, though, to think, Wade, that 10, 20, 30, however many thousand people came together. The vast majority that I saw made no effort to wear personal protection equipment and also no real issues with virus transmission. So yeah, I'm, I'm worrisome about this, if that's a correct way to put it. Cause what I don't want to hear is, Hey, we had full wide open everything and we love racing. And this is the best track in the world. And we're so happy that y'all came and we offered you masks and this and that and the other. Most of you didn't care and didn't use them. Most of you didn't social distance. And we have now, a day, a week, however, weeks later, we've now been identified as a giant hotspot. And cases have exploded. And that's the thing that is racing we really don't want. Because then the scrutiny that comes our way, not just IndyCar, but any major series. We saw what with the NASCAR All-Star Race last night. They said twenty or 30,000 people, the biggest crowd. Again, I'm not sure that's a fact uh, that might have been Road America, but regardless, what's the last thing NASCAR wants to hear? Uh, the many, many folks who, although there was a lot of social distancing involved, uh, I did not see a lot of masks. Last thing they want to hear is, yeah, and boy, the all-star race was just a hotbed for Spreading the coronavirus, and we can't have fans anymore. So, I hope that this isn't the case, Wade. I saw the same thing and was worried about the same thing. I did notice, I think, on the broadcast, might have been Sunday, there were things shown on Saturday where it was like, oh, holy crap, no one gives a damn about protecting themselves or others. And then on Sunday, it seemed like there might have been a note of, like, hey, don't cut to the crowds because what I saw was a bunch of still photographs thrown up instead that were tightly cropped and in those tight crops it appears that folks wearing PPE were chosen so uh, I kind of wonder if the note was passed on overnight of like hey uh, if you show anything yeah just use these uh, because they make it look like everyone is taking care of their fellow man or fellow woo man. Uh, let's go to Tim Peters, who asked, did safety and computer aided design kill innovation in racing? The amount of safety built into Indy cars is so great that the cost to build your own gets you to Formula One grade costs. Does hashtag me personally? He wants safe cars. He says, CAD took away odd designs because with AP, QP, fluid dynamics, and aero, Only a few choices are workable. What are your thoughts? I think your thoughts are wrong, Tim. Um, We know that computer-aided design and computational fluid dynamics do not magically make quality. It's the person creating that makes quality or does not make quality. So these are tools they might be software tools. They might be awesome and very helpful software tools, but they are tools in the same way a ruler and pencil and blueprints and other things are tools and have been used in the past. So, would say rules have been the things that have killed innovation. Uh, it's not safety. It's not CAD. It's not CFD. It's rules. Uh, You cannot go and make your own IndyCar chassis right now and have it allowed into an IndyCar race. It's not permitted. I am very confident that there are some very smart people, some who've made IndyCars before, maybe those who haven't but have big brains and a lot of knowledge, who could look at. Break down the current Delara. Look at a Panos from before, or Lola or whatever. Quickly suss out. Oh, okay, this is uh this is how these things are made. Okay, Arrow, got it. Let me. Okay, I have a background, or I have people who have backgrounds. I have no doubt that really smart people could make some really innovative and cool things, Tim, and things that are better than the current car. The rules don't allow it, so. Uh, no, I mean, even, <laughs> even in the earlier days of CAD, uh, we had designs that were both good and bad today. We have designs that are both good and bad. If we look to formula one, the difference is granted. It's not five seconds. Like maybe it might've been before or seven seconds, but even if it's only two or three, it's still a big ass number. So yeah. Yeah. It's the rules, man. It's not uh, not the tools. Hey, that's a little slogan. Uh, John Ranjow, how you doing, buddy? Uh, let's see. Another long one here. Talking about fights and racetrack dust ups on the interwebs. Uh, NASCAR fight at Kentucky. Driver drop kicking another car's windshield at some random short track. I'm into thinking why does it appear any car drivers are more level headed? The last anything close to a fight. I remember, was our man Sebastian Bourdais and Takuma Sato getting, at it, uh, getting after it at Indy Toronto in 2019? Could it be a greater respect for each other, more stringent rules from the series? Not that I want more fighting, but it strikes me as odd. Everyone gets along in our series, but it's Hell in a Cell and all the other series. Uh, thank you, my man. You also mentioned, uh, I'll get you the last part of your question here. I'll throw out a pretty basic one, and it's not meant to be disrespectful to... IndyCar drivers, but culturally, there's not a lot outside of karting as a kid, maybe, when you just, you know, your emotions rule you. There's not a whole lot of culture and history in modern era, right? We're gonna obviously it doesn't apply to the A.J. Foyt, you know, dirt track racing era and whatnot, Parnelli Jones and such, but if we're talking the last 20, 30 years, where a lot of today's drivers would have been bred from, just really isn't part of the culture. The, Hey, I'm racing in a formula Ford or two liter car or pro Mazda or Indy lights, Atlantic, whatever the culture of that guy screwed me, crashed me out. You're going to get out of the car, go clock him upside the head. It's just not there. I think there's also a, at least we're talking open wheel. I think there's also a sense that it is among the most dangerous. Of course, Saturday night, non-wing sprint car, quadruple barrel roll, 30 feet in the air. I mean, that's, again, that's real holy crap. But at the same time, even if it's some of the slower open wheel, kind of the junior-level cars, the, the amount of catastrophic what just happened from banging wheels, hyper-aggressive, riding over one another's wheels, flipping, crashing, getting torn apart and such. There's a recognition early on, once you get into cars, out of carts, that, oh boy, are you exposed. Oh boy, are you exposed. And... It's a lot better today with crushable structures on the sides and halos and or not. Well, yeah, halos in some classes, uh, Hans devices and head surrounds and all kinds of things. But there's still a lot of ways well below IndyCar where, man, you are certainly exposed to some nasty potential stuff if it were to happen and so I think as a result there, John, you get, not only is there no culture of get out of the car and just punch each other, but I think there is a stronger sense of, better take care of each other. And, you know, maybe if I take care of you, you will also take care of me because I am at risk if you don't take some care for me in your decisions and actions. So that's different than a kid coming up in a stock car or a GT car or a prototype. Those are all very expensive things to crash, and you can certainly get hurt in those too. But you're also surrounded by a lot of real estate, Um, the sense of being out and exposed. When I was racing Formula Fords, I had, I think, one real crash. I had one crash. I caused it myself. It was my own fault, but my... Shoulders have always been vaguely broad, at least as an adult. And so I can tell you that climbing into that Formula Ford, which is a tube frame vehicle, has fiber, had fiberglass bodywork that went around it. That fiberglass is not stopping a thing. (laughs) Not at all. You grab a knife, you could probably stab your way through it if you wanted to. So imagine what the next guy's wheel is or nose, or radiator, or trailing link, or anti-roll bar, or whatever. Imagine that thing coming at you. I mean, uh, there is, for anyone who will admit it, I'll admit it, because I know I thought it, sitting in this open-wheel car, which I loved and it was amazing, and yada, yada, yada. There's a feeling of, I could be a human shish kebab, I could absolutely have something stabbed through the side, stabbed through here, up, coming up from the floor, coming from the side, coming down. There's a lot of ways that I can get skewered in this thing. Same with the guy next to me, all based on our decisions. Of course, there's the random things. You know, Something breaks, a guy blows a motor, and the guy behind slides off and hits another one. Again, I'm not talking the random stuff. I'm just talking the okay, this is amazing. These cars are the coolest ever. But we better think about what we're doing because the potential for harming one another is just at a totally different level. So I think you put those two things together, John, and that's why you don't get a lot of IndyCar drivers smacking each other around. What would be funny is if it were to start happening because I don't think many of them really have a fighting bone in their body. We know Power does. We know Daly was a wrestler. We know that there's a couple folks who could probably handle themselves. But by and large, other than cardio boxing, I don't think you're going to find many IndyCar drivers who actually know how to handle themselves, uh, how to put their dukes up. So it might just be funny. uh, Let's go to Lynn Henderson-Gale, who asks, how does push-to-pass get reset for each race? Super question, Lynn. It's all through electronics. It's just simply electronic reset. Uh, It's the equivalent of pressing the button on the screen. And that is how the ECU, that is how the allowance for more boost to be provided, is triggered and activated. So it's just simply a timing mechanism where drivers have a certain amount of push-to-pass time that they're allotted, once it's up, they get no more, obviously. Going in the next race, it's just a case of activating its use. Uh, let's see. Brett Ross, MP of all your IndyCar picks that you've taken. is there one or two that are your all-time favorites? Oh, thanks for asking, Brett. I, I feel like I'm going to fail you here pretty heavily. Um, recently, in the last couple of months, I've started a project. Actually, was doing a little bit before I started recording here. And that is going through all of my photos and trying to pick out the ones that I think are excellent and that folks might want to purchase and putting them aside, putting them into a separate folder. And I will... That's probably going to take a while to go through that process because I've been shooting for 30... What, four years now? I don't know. A while. Um, want to prep those, clean them up, do whatever needs to be done, but get those s- stuck into a beautiful folder of their own and hopefully start to offer some for sale. So I haven't had a chance to do a lot of car yet. It's been, frankly, I've just started on my sports car hard drive. And so that's most of what I have pulled and dropped into this folder so I haven't seen a ton of my IndyCar stuff of late. We'll mention one that is among my all-time favorites, and it's just its a sentimental thing. Uh, I believe Willie T even uses it as his avatar in a couple of places. That was a photo I took on Pit Lane at Portland, I believe, in 1994. So I would have been there with the... Summit Motorsports, uh, Indy Lights team, Doug Boyer was the driver. Uh, that's a very obscure reference uh, and team, by the way, for anyone who might remember it. Um, and so I don't believe I was on physically standing on pit lane. I think this is more case of I was on the cold side of the pit wall, but had my camera would have been between sessions. That's where a lot of these photos came from me back in the day of either goofing off between sessions. Once I was done working on whatever car I was working on, or <laughs> uh, there are a couple races where uh, my friend, Margie Smith Haas, who was a member of the PPG pace car team. Uh, she got me credentials, media credentials, uh, photographer credentials. So that was really cool where maybe I wasn't w- with a team at that point or whatever, but by and large, it was just me always bring my camera to the races. And if I could sneak off after getting something done on whatever car I was prepping, would go do that. Sometimes I'd sneak off, even if I wasn't done, wasn't always the best race crew member. Uh, but there's a photo that I took in 94 on pit lane of Willie T and his son, who has gone on to become a champion shooter. Uh, there's a photo that I took of the two of them, and it's just Willie T and his son, who might've been two or three at the time. And uh, his son is Theo, is standing on pit lane with his bottle. And it's just, I've always just thought of it as the cutest dang thing in the world. And I loved it when I saw it. And I'm so happy that I took it. Um, And so it's just, yeah, it's a sentimental favorite. As for technical artistry, I don't know, man. Um, There's a couple that I've taken in recent years at Indianapolis that are, I don't know what to call them, but they're explosion of speed shots where I think there's one of Rossi coming at me out of turn four, which I captured at, I don't know, maybe one fifth of a second. And it's just this crazy streak of all kinds of things. Really like that one. One other one that uh, I've recently made into bumper stickers, which I'll sell here at some point in time. Um, I know, bumper stickers? What's that? No one uses those anymore. That's okay. Uh, It's of Mario Andretti, another good friend of ours here in the show. Guest number one, episode number one, the man, the goat, Mario. Uh, This would have been from his final race, the Arrivederci Mario Tour in 1994. And this was at Laguna Seca, just found it. And I am at the driver's left apex of what is this Uh, two three four i believe turn five and i am crouched way the heck down and it is him sweeping across the red and white curbing there's a lot of advertising hoardings behind him which throw in some nice color mario in his number six kmart texaco haviland lola Cosworth. And it just by chance is a photo that really, really worked out. And so it was the man in his final race and me, you know, camera wise, I am genuinely about the height of his helmet. And, you know, he's 30 inches off the ground. So I don't remember exactly how he took it, but I'm sure it involved squatting (laughs) or laying on my, you know, laying on my stomach or something. But anyways, um, that worked out quite well. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Bill Clinton was president. Good Lord. Um, So yeah, there's some in there, man. I appreciate the question. Last thing I'll just throw in here on the topic of me and photography. I've done less and less and less of it in recent years. More of what my clients have needed. It's been of the video and words variety. And so I just haven't had a chance to shoot a ton. And I admittedly fell a bit out of love with it because it's just a lot of work along with everything else. Um, Looking back through a lot of old photos of mine here, Brett, I, I don't mind saying I can be a pretty good photographer. Not great. I know who the greats are. I know I'm not one of them. That's not false humidity. That's humidity. Unpolished turd. It's not false humility. It's genuinely recognizing. I know who the greats are. I am not one of them, but I feel like I can play in their general yard upon occasion, but it's been cool looking back here, Brett, and I've got so much more to do, but just to realize like, you know, when I have the time and the mental clarity and I, I can go out there and be a artist with a camera, I can do. Okay it's really made me feel good because i'll tell you for the last couple of years i haven't felt good i felt like man dude you are garbage so the part's been fun let's go to derp de force marshall this past week and i volunteered for flagging and communication at a regional scca event good on you during some downtime i wondered what it would take to record a video of a session with good sound quality Since you have experience in capturing sounds, can you give me some prosumer pointers? Also mentions best wishes for you and your wife and hope to meet you at a track someday. Well, same here. Uh, I'm going to do this, uh, between assembling the questions here, which our man, Tim Falkowitz did on Monday, uh, and getting to your question, you sent me a a really kind direct message, So, I'm going to try and remember to answer this directly because I can do better stuff there and send you links to things I would suggest. Uh, Chapin17 says, Hey, Marshall, in the story that was posted on Racer on Saturday where Roger Penske said Ferrari is his only target to get a 3rd engine manufacturer, he says, that was really surprising me. He says, firstly, I didn't expect talks to get this far, but what surprised me was, most how focused roger was on bringing ferrari in and not pursuing other manufacturers in case ferrari decided not to enter the series which would leave any car hanging did this also surprise you or was it to be expected one thousand percent not expected uh yeah that's the same thing here that stood out most of all who and who am i to question roger right him Billionaire upon billionaire, successful businessman of all time. Me, not in any way of all time. Just sharing, though, from a a strategical standpoint, I would think you'd be working multiple swim lanes, working multiple options for the exact point you mentioned. Uh, Ferrari says, nope. Uh do you want to be at ground zero having to start over again with whomever? It's not to say that he isn't having conversations with anyone else and that there aren't maybe some potentials on the line, but it does sound like he's putting his full effort into this. What a lot of angles to potentially get into here, and I know uh we've been doing the show for a little while now, so I don't want to turn this into a 19-year long episode. A few things, if Roger is going to entice Ferrari to participate, there's probably going to be some sort of business angle as well. And I don't mean Roger capitalizing on this from a business standpoint, but some sort of, okay, well, you've had the option to do this forever. You haven't. Um, What things can we do? Can I do? Look, whether it's across my dealerships, across all the businesses that I have, are there any other areas that would help seal the deal? What else can we do? And he's always looking to do that. So that's not, again, there's no conflict of interest here. The guy co-owns Ilmore, which builds and supplies Chevy's IndyCar engines. So again, from a business standpoint, the guy's already deeply embedded long before he bought the series is always looking for ways to use his business empire to strengthen, improve, you name it, the racing relationships that he has. Is there something Roger could do in or around Ferrari that would make Ferrari say, okay, yeah, we got to do this. Uh, It'd only be smart. And Ferrari is looking to make more money, sell more cars, have a greater market share. Many, many things. If there's any way that Roger Penske, through his non-IndyCar businesses, can help, great. Through the IndyCar business as well, great. They work with Chevy and Honda to do the same thing, to see how the series can help them. Of course, they also charge them, but still, uh, there's that as well. I would expect that would be part of the conversation. Only natural. Another thing to throw in here, which I believe I mentioned last week, might have been the week before, whatever it was, The premise that Ferrari has presented is, with this upcoming Formula One budget cut that everyone's agreed to, that they didn't want, Ferrari didn't want, but they've ultimately agreed to, uh, this is going to require us to downsize our staff. Italian law says we basically can't do that uh, for no particular reason, and so we need to find a way to keep these people employed to not run afoul of Italian law mentioned that, well, since we're going to have Formula One employment redundancies, we need to find something else to do to repurpose those people. One of the options he mentioned was IndyCar. Another one was sports car racing. FIEWEC would be the place. How exactly you comply with Italian law by running a team that would really need to be based in the U.S.? I don't know how you do that the one that makes the most sense, knowing how the FIWEC is run out of Paris, run out of France, just north of Italy, and is a European-based series that obviously flies and does international races, but is by and large a European series. That sure seems like the really easy answer. That seems like the one that makes the most sense. Hey, Ferrari, what are you going to do with the people that you can't use or won't use in Formula One now? Well, we'll do just like we do with this European-based but internationally traveling F1 series. We're going to do that in the European-based, internationally traveling sports car series. How they make the leap to doing IndyCar? Don't know. I uh, would love to hear it, but I am absolutely surprised that Roger does not have other manufacturers on the line Looking to try and develop those relationships because yeah, Ferrari's a big name. Great, I've never, I've never been a Ferrari fan. I've never disliked them. I've just the whole tifosi buzz about Ferrari just never felt it. I'd rather see Ford. I'd rather see Toyota. Uh, I'd rather see Mazda. I'd rather see Lexus. I'd rather see BMW. I'd rather see a whole bunch. Come on Porsche, let's go do IndyCar again. I know I keep hearing that Penske and Porsche might be doing something in Imsa's next generation prototype category. Who knows what's gonna happen there? But I'd just love to I'd love to get any top tier highly budgeted manufacturer in. If it could be Ferrari, great but I'd hate to hear that the focus was placed on Ferrari so much that some of the other ones that might have been interested a couple of years from now felt like they weren't getting the attention they deserved. Uh let's see. Going to go to a couple more and then we're going to say farewell. Uh yeah, what do we have? Good Lord, we got three more here. Ha! I love it. All right, we're going to get this done here. We are getting it D U N done. Uh Ross Porter. Hey Ross says, uh, this re- weekend's racing not only solidified that I can't die until visiting Road America. He says, uh, your interview with Roger Penske was also very encouraging and showed the series in the best hands it can be. In particular, I love Roger's overhaul plan for Indy Lights. How feasible is it in your opinion? Do you think most entries would simply be old chassis that teams have replaced uh, for the IndyCar programs? Uh, he also says, by the way, keep posting the awesome Sounds of Podcasts. Not only do I really love them, says my three-year-old lights up when we play the waste car sounds in the car. All right, Ross, you got a deal there. Yeah, so just dialing things back a little bit. This is kind of sort of the same thing Randy Bernard floated in, I don't know, what was that, 2011, 2012, something like that, Friendly Lights. Uh, the hey it'll just be a Dallara DW12 but there'll be a lights version and an IndyCar version and IndyCar teams that want to run an Indy lights team well you can buy one of these you can strip it down to lights spec and if you want to use it for the Indy500 well you can build it up to IndyCar spec hey lights teams if you buy one of these in the lights spec well you're not too far away from spending your way to having an IndyCar and boy you're all you know it's not the first time we've heard the idea where, where I have a real question, Ross is in the thought process. So again, this is not me saying Roger's wrong and I'm right. This is just me trying to grasp. So Indy Lights, The Road to Indian General, which is run by Anderson Promotions. That's Dan Anderson, Man in Charge. Those are his series. I don't honestly recall if he owns Indy Lights or if that's been leased. Uh, again, just things that I feel like I once knew and now my brain has dumped. Um, whatever it was, the IndyCar series said, hey, we kind of need to hand this off. Uh, the cars are getting old, we know that they. we need a new chassis, we need a new you name it, we don't have the money, we don't have the time, we don't have the staff, we don't have a bunch of stuff. If you happen to remember multiple years that went by where it was like, yeah, hey, we're going to go to a new car and we're going to, yeah, and we're going to, going to, going to, going to, and we're seeking proposals and all kinds of things and never went anywhere. And so there just came a point where general acknowledgement was, Maybe we need to just put this in the hands of the guy, Dan Anderson, his daughter Michelle, uh, find people there who run what was then USF 2000 and Pro Mazda. We need to really just consolidate this and have them look after Indy Light. So, again, I apologize. I forget whether they have ownership or it's IndyCar's property, but it's leased. Whatever it is. This is something that the Andersons have been in charge of and have done phenomenal work with, especially since the new chassis, the Delara IL-15, came online in 2015. So here we are now, what, five years into it? New chassis, well, it's no longer new, but the new era chassis, which replaced the stupidly old previous chassis, this new four-cylinder turbo engine from AER that was Mazda-badged until it no longer Mazda-badged. What we have here is a total reimagining of Indy Lights as done by Anderson Promotions. I think they've done a great job. Cooper Tires obviously provides fine rubber for the cars as well, all three tiers of the latter. But here in Indy Lights, specifically to your question, Ross, We have IndyCar, having given it, passed it off, leased it, whatever, to the Andersons. IndyCar saying, sorry, we know it needs a refresh. We just can't and don't and won't. Left it to the Andersons to do it. Andersons did it. We're now many years into this formula. The thought of, well, let's just chuck everything you've done, and we're going to have IndyCar teams use their older chassis or I'm not totally sure buy new chassis, but they're down spec to something in motors that, you know, could run a long time. But what are those motors? Again? I don't know. Is it more Chevys and Hondas? Is it just Honda? Is it Chevy? Is it who knows another brand? Um, this is the only part that really stood out to me as, I love the the spirit of this and the idea of it. But I'm not sure where this fits from a governance standpoint, Ross. So if IndyCar truly owns Indy Lights and can dictate whatever it wants and decides to say, "Hey, Andersons, thank you. Go away." Or, "Hey, Andersons, thanks for everything you've done." Uh, but we're going to change everything you've done. And here's the new Indy car formula for Indy lights. And this is what you're going to have to do. I'm not sure how that works out Ross, because the thing that jumps out to me is what's the one problem we've had in Indy lights, not enough cars. What are the reasons? What are the symptoms that have caused us? There are many, they all come down to money basically. The budget to run a full season in Indy Lights uh, is not extreme at all, but it has, as we have learned, proved to be more than the average mom and dad is willing to pay today for little Johnny or little Susie to do the top tier of the road to Indy. So again, it's not a case of the Anderson's pricing Indy Lights out of the ballpark. It's just a case of there aren't as many people walking around with an Indy Lights-level budget that they're willing to commit. So if money is the problem, and most IndyCar teams will tell you, what's your biggest problem? They'll all say, money! Well, I don't know how a chassis change and a formula change altogether... Uh, there would obviously have to be new parts and pieces uh, involved to down-spec a DW-12. I don't know how many DW-12s are sitting unused um, to then make a grid of 15 to 20 or whatever amount of cars. I Again, I love the idea of, hey, how can we use the current equipment you have, car teams, to repopulate Indy Lights? But I also realized that there's an organization that was handed the series because IndyCar couldn't do it, wouldn't do it, wasn't interested. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of work put in, but ultimately the spending the money to do it part, that's where it all fell apart. Well, these fine people did do it. IndyCar didn't pay for the new chassis. This is something that, you know, the Andersons have done. And what's the problem? Well, budgets. Great. Uh... That's an area where I think IndyCar could really help. So what do you do here, Ross? Do you say, sorry, people, we're going to change the formula, take it back, whatever it is, and the money that teams don't have right now to run, you know, to put 15 to 20 lights cars on the grid, do we get those people back? Because by going to a full-grade IndyCar chassis, but downgraded to... A slower spec is going to be able to be run at such a low cost that all of a sudden uh, grid sizes double because it's that much cheaper. I'm just throwing out here, most of the Indy Lights teams have had their cars for multiple years, been amortized, been probably paid off. You know, The actual how much I need to charge you for an annual budget with paying for the equipment that I have factored in. That's the thing that made the final years of the last Indy lights formula pretty solid because budgets were stupid low because the cars had been around for a thousand years had been paid off forever. So teams, while I'm sure they would have loved to have charged a ton were able to get down to some pretty modest prices, 2013, 2014 era, you know, uh, we might be kind of sort of at that stage right now or getting towards that stage with the current cars now that they're five ish plus years old. So again, in theory, I like Rogers general approach. Just seems to be a lot of question of who would run it. Uh, what would you do with the current cars? Uh, why would the indie cars be cheaper to run than the current ones that people already own? How many of the current cars are sitting around unused? Uh, Indy lights, that is, that could be bought and run by IndyCar teams. Why not incentivize those teams to do that? First, uh, knowing that in theory we're not too far away from an car chassis change. Uh, you know, if we're talking about Indy lights becoming better uh, in terms of car counts, we don't know when this next car chassis is coming. Jay Fry said they'd like to do this kind of slow rollout of piece by piece year after year. What does that mean? (laughs) You know, would there be a bunch of redundant DW 12 chassis by 2023, 24? I don't know, but that's a lot of years down the line. So again, I'm just trying to (sighs) a lot of stuff to think through here, Ross, anything Roger can do to put more Indy lights cars on the grid. I'm going to super extra love it and cheer for it. I can only hope it does not come at the expense of the Andersons who are uniquely positioned to know how to do this best and continue making it good. I don't know if going away from the current cars, which I don't know, brought us Colton Herta, Oliver Askew, Uh, I was going to say Colton Herta again. He's so good. I'm going to say it twice. Pato Award, Yada, yada, yada. I mean, you look at the current grid, and there sure are a lot of crazy high-quality drivers. We're talking Felix Rosenquist, of course, included in that. Uh, Zach Veach. I know that he did a lot of time in the previous chassis, too. Renus VK. Uh, you know, Jack Harvey. What, did Jack? Yeah, I think Jack was in the new cars as well. Max Chilton. Um, you know, you work down the list, Spencer Pigot, uh first champion, right, in the new car. There's a lot of crazy talent that has stepped straight into IndyCar from this current IL15 chassis and been damn effective. So maybe that's the thing that is not being spoken about enough or presented as something to preserve not against changing chassis and doing other things if it can be afforded and all that but man we're talking training getting them ready who's going to make the argument that this Delara IL-15 AER four-cylinder turbo on Cooper tires has not been pushing out freaking beasts Coming into IndyCar, that's working. The financial side, not working. MP's thoughts as a guy who spent a lot of years doing road to India-ish type stuff, uh, everything from running teams to managing to engineering to just being a dumb bottom of the ladder mechanic. Let's work on the money side first, and if you can't fix that, maybe we go to chassis changes and other things. But Let's address the core issue first and see if we can't fix that. That would be my recommendation. All right, two questions to go. Uh, Thanks again to everyone who sent these in. Joey, the Priuses, normally around this time of year we'd be talking silly season, but it seems like the delayed start to the racing season has brought a delayed start to the silly season. Have any silly season rumors started to circulate yet? Yes, I have just heard that Top Gun Racing... Going five cars full-time next year. Um, Highway to the Quattro Zone, I believe is the slogan. Uh, No, kidding aside, boy, I haven't heard much. And it's because it is, as you mentioned, still early in the season. So we know that on the calendar, we're at a point where it normally starts happening. Not enough racing has happened for this to really take root yet. Meaning, inevitably, the yeah, I know I went to this team and I thought they're going to be good, but they suck and I want out and I'm going to take my sponsor somewhere else. Haven't had enough of those races yet for those handful of drivers to say that. The teams that either took someone with money or hired someone thinking they were going to be the bee's knees. Haven't been enough races for them to go. Nah, dude, you suck. You're out. Um, also not totally sure. Again, I'm going to hang this willpower thing out again. Um, not totally sure where everyone's at in terms of contracts. So could there be some movement? Pagano again, we believe his deal, his current deal is up at the end of this year. Who knows what happens there? Uh, does he have a great close to the season? and finishes second, uh, wins some big races, and Roger says, there's no way we could go racing without you, and here's a new contract. Or, eh, this guy's not winning a championship, and we got Newgarden who can win a championship, and we got Power who, hopefully, uh, can win a championship again, be in the hunt. Uh, Maybe we just look at Scotty McLaughlin, and there you go. Scotty is your chance over since it looks like he's not going to race this year in any car. And therefore we're just going to push this whole thing back a year again. I don't know. On the Andretti front, we know that Zach Veach is driving for a career, right? He is someone who absolutely needs to perform to get his sponsors to sign on to do more time. There, uh, we'll say we know Andretti is a prize destination, we know that Zach's sponsor has been a mighty fine sponsor. Would Michael look to, whether that sponsor's coming back or not, shop around and see if there's anyone else that might be able to pay for that ride? Or would it be an automatic, pay? Hey, if you guys want to stay, then here's another three-year contract? I don't know. I do know that Zach, as he's told us, needs to perform needs to get that contract for those things to become possible. What's going on at Foyt? We know that they don't have enough money. They've said it. You know, we need more sponsors. We need more everything. Uh, they're running three different drivers this year. We know they'd love to have board day full-time. We know that Tony is not going to be in the car next year, unless it's, you know, maybe an Indy 500 deal or whatever. So there's certainly something there to consider. Um what would that mean for Dalton Kellett? Would he be coming back if he can or wants to, or the team will have him? I don't know. I think I'm just running through this here while we're talking about it. And it's the close of the show. And I figure folks, you don't give a crap checked out a while ago. Um, so yeah, there should be at least one seat that is needing to be filled at Foyt could be filled with a Kellett or a Borday if some money can be found or the two of them. If it, split who knows I'm thinking Charlie Kimball would be back provided his sponsors are back with him Um, that seems to be a pretty good relationship uh, start to the relationship and ready I don't foresee a whole lot of change there again other than the one question mark being of Veach Aaron McLaren SP I don't think Pato's going anywhere I don't know his contract length or Oliver but I expect Oliver to get back on track here pretty soon and do some pretty good stuff and show that, yes, indeed, uh, stumbles aside. He's awesome, and he's one to hold on to. Carlin, again, don't know. Uh, I hope everything's good with Max continuing next year. We know that they would love to have a second driver, but funded, of course. Uh, We're still hoping to see that happen. Ganassi, I think they're going to be set with the same three. Marcus is certainly looking like a guy who will uh, be fitting in nicely for more uh, more than just one year. Coin, who knows? Uh, I mean, Ferrucci brings, I believe, two million is a number that I've heard for two years now. Provided that money can keep coming in, and Vasser and Sullivan can find the money that they bring, and Dale is good with all that. Great, Alex Polo, I hope that kid hangs around. He seems to be pretty awesome. Don't see any sponsors on the side of the car, so I'm not totally sure how that's getting paid for, other than out of Dale Coyne's pocket and Kazumichi Go's pocket. So that's a question mark, right? Uh, very rarely do unsponsored cars go multiple years with the same driver, unless it's you know uh, illegal, uh, legally gained money. Um, Jaron Reinbold, we assume Wix Filters and the good people there and Sage Caramel continue doing what they can. Ed Carpenter Racing. Can you hope that Connor's deal is going to be a multi-year and awesome, if not expand to full-time here? Renus, same hope as well that he'd be around for multiple years because that kid's pretty amazing. Meyer Shank, I think we're only going to hear about them going forward, and I would hope that would be with Jack Harvey as well. Ray Hall, Edelman, Lanigan, Graham. Ray Hall's not going anywhere to We don't know, just because we don't know. I don't know. I hope he stays around. Love that guy. Spencer Piggott, love to see him go full-time. Don't know if that's going to happen uh, next year. And then the Penske part. you know uh, Is someone going to make way for Scotty McLaughlin, or does that project get pushed to 2022 or go away altogether? We don't know. So just ran through all that, Joey, because there's a couple spots we can look at, right? Foyt maybe, but they're going to have to good, have a good year for multiple drivers to want to be there. Andretti could be one. I don't know about Aero, McLaren, SP. Um, I would have to believe they'd want to do at least two years with their current drivers. Carlin, we know there's a second seat that could be filled right now, so we hope that happens. Haven't heard anything about Ganassi trying to be more than three cars. Coin question mark as always. Um, who knows? John Reinbold, know they'd like to do more, but you know there's a lot of other teams that are more proven and more current. That I think the average driver would go to to talk to, Carpenter. Hopefully there are no vacancies there. Shank can't see any changes. Ray Hall again, unless Takuma decides to hang it up at the end of the year. I don't think that's going to change. And Penske, which we've covered. So, guess what we get back to here is the final answer on this. Joey is going to be some silly season, but I don't think it's going to be a lot of musical chairs, moving chairs, and so on. So, let's close here. With Matt Anderson, a little bit of a longer one. And you know what? I'm going to finish my water here. It's Marsh with the coming introduction of the new NASCAR chassis in 2022. Have you gotten a sense from any drivers in IndyCar about possibly making a transition over there? It's back in the mid 2000s. Seemed like a lot of interest from IndyCar drivers doing just that. Dario Franchitti, AJ Allmendinger, Sam Hornish Jr., we're lumping in Jacques Villeneuve. Um, that's cool. The interest seemed to die down after they didn't experience much success. We should also throw in Juan Montoya. Granted, he came over after F1. I think Jacques as well. Um, didn't have much success due to the cars being so completely different. You have to have years of experience in that form of racing in order to be successful. However, with the new cars being much more modernized carbon tubs, modern independent suspension, sequential gearboxes, 18-inch wheels, etc., seems like they'll be more adaptable to the driving styles of the rest of the world. If this proves to be true, with the increase of money to be made in NASCAR, do you anticipate any drivers looking to make a serious attempt to try to do races in 2022 when the playing field is more level with the cup regulars, possibly running dual schedules, maybe a part-time cup and full-time IndyCar with an eye on evaluating a full-time switch? It's an awesome question, Matt, and as I say all the time, whether it's here on my Week in Sports Car show, you have a knack for great questions. Everything you mentioned here about why NASCAR teams should be more open to IndyCar drivers would also say top-tier sports car drivers coming in and trying their hand with the next-gen or whatever they call this car, 1,000% valid. One issue, though, it's a bit of a generational thing taking place, I would say, mid-2000s, late-2000s. A lot of drivers aging out, or some that had been stars were just fading. And so I think there was more curiosity of like, hey, that's a rising star over there. Let's give him a shot. So Dario being a champ, AJ coming close to being a champ, Hornish being a champ. Uh, Jacquez as well, being a champ, but you know, multi-discipline champ. Say that experiment failed miserably, Matt. Uh, that's an obvious thing to say. I mean, Montoya was the only one who I think really settled in and showed that he could be explosively good. Uh, sorry, bad pun there. Explosively good at times. Hornish too was good and dinger's good and heck he's even you know i'd say he might end up being the best of all of them uh, that you listed here but i think the general perception is yeah that open wheel that hot open wheel guy uh we're gonna give him a shot over here oh boy i think that there's such a big enough stigma against that that even though everything you mentioned about the new car maybe being more of a playing field leveler uh, which would then allow a new garden or a rossi or a whomever to climb in and demonstrate their excellence much faster much sooner i think that's absolutely should absolutely be true less arcane of a car to drive less forget everything you've ever known start from scratch type deal but i think the stigma man is is what's going to make that not happen uh, that just spirit of experimentation really seemed to die after too many IndyCar drivers went over and were anywhere from good to not great to just not great. I know Dario, who isn't a man who has a ton of regrets, says, boy, I really wish I had another year to try that out because I do think I uh, really would have been much, much better and I don't doubt it. That guy is crazy, super Swiss army knife adaptable, but he didn't get that chance. Uh, AJ has just been banging away at it for so long. You know, he was already good, but, you know, rarely with big, great front-running teams, but regardless, he's made a lot out of not a whole bunch. Hornish, eh, you know, seems like the Xfinity stuff is maybe a little bit more of his vibe. Um... All that stuff aside, I love the idea of it, and I think, if anything, it could be more of a, hey, come on out, you're going to be an extra car for the road course races, or, again, we know Xfinity is where that happens a lot uh, with the guest drive thing, but maybe on the cup level, who knows? Maybe this is something where, uh, especially sports car aces. Boy, um you know, This is something that should plug right in to the beasts of IMSA uh, to do, for sure. But I would say IndyCar, don't discount them as well. But I, I just think the stigma thing, Matt, is going to be the thing that really makes what is a super plausible reason to reach out and inquire be something that actually doesn't really happen much at all. You know, there was one other thing I was going to share with you before uh, we got going with questions, and it just popped into my head. And this is just in the sharing aspect in the old Pruitt family. Probably one of the reasons why I'm a little bit more sensitive about PPE and observing what people are or are not doing on top of our own immunocompromisation. Got word in recent days that now a third family member Uh, has tested positive for the coronavirus so and i know that we're talking about folks who have taken considerable precautions and so yeah it's not a political thing man it has nothing to do with politics it has everything to do with looking after your fellow human being so just want to share that you know, there is admittedly a sensitivity there, uh, where there's fear and concern that we could lose, genuinely lose one or more family member. You know, everyone that has contracted it is over 50, uh, somewhat significantly over 50. So yeah, uh, I would hope y'all are taking good care of yourselves and each other doing your best to prevent getting sick with anything much less the coronavirus anything because boy uh the amount of this person died that person died uh, it is so dang depressing that uh it's not as if i want people to die beforehand but yeah seems like i have been running at my limit for processing really bad information uh, about people losing their lives due to this virus or violence or any other thing so I'm stating a really simple and obvious and dumb thing, and it's probably the most unnecessary thing. But I do care about y'all, and I really do hope that you all are taking care of yourselves and uh, trying to do the same for others. So this is it. This is the stupidly late. I doubt anyone's going to listen to much of it because we've got a new race going. Um, The cool thing is, next Monday, for the first time in forever... I'm uh, not going to be knocking out too much of the day with appointments. So should be home by 12-ish, maybe 1 o'clock, which means there's absolutely no excuse for me to not get your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A done Monday night and posted either that evening or Tuesday morning. So sorry for this one being late. As our man Montoya says, it is what it is, but I'll try not to make it what it is. Uh, too many more times. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is a little podcast here that we do each week. Thank you again to everyone for submitting your questions and to the Justice Brothers, definitely to Cooper Tires, Bell Racing Helmets USA, and their good pals at TorontoMotorsports.com. You can, if you want, pick up a cartoon anvil protection t shirt or the specific Ryan Hunter Ray version. Send $7.28 to Racing for Cancer with every one that you purchase. I'll speak to you next week.